A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 219th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Richard Yeagley. I'm Adam Lowe. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we have Benjamin Berman on the podcast. He is a director that had a movie at Sundance called The Amazing Jonathan. It's a documentary about the magician slash comedian, and it's a crazy documentary because a lot of weird things happen while Ben was making this documentary. It's filled with twists and turns yes. as you might say it's on hulu right now ben also has directed episodes of flaked comedy bang bang workaholics he worked on tim and eric he's done a bunch of really cool things and he shares all his experiences with us and matt and i try to figure out what his work has in common with itself <laughs> he's done scripted things half hour tv movies documentaries and he's got a cool perspective and i think it's fun to see his journey because we usually aim for inspiring filmmaker stories, and I think Ben's story is inspiring. He's pretty candid about like the ups and downs and mm-hmm. the things that he thought would happen that didn't happen, like right after a Sundance premiere. And there's a lot of really good tidbits in this one. So if you're into yeah. comedy filmmaking and really just thinking about why you're a filmmaker, <laughs> he has some really interesting things to say. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, the thing that's so fascinating about Ben is that if you look at you know, his his IMDb is just a murderer's row of, like, awesome shows I would kill to be a part of. Like, so awesome. But to me, Ben really imbues this interview with, uh, like, his philosophy. And I think that it's easy to look at the IMDb and to be like, oh, man, this guy's, like, so into jokes. And he's a <laughs> real comedy nerd. And while he is certainly very funny... I think the the brilliance of Ben and his whole take is just in seeking out ways to be authentic and original. Certainly, his documentary is an example of that, but I think if you look at all of his work, I think you can see those seeds. And certainly in this interview, we learn a little bit more about how he actually pushes himself to make things interesting. Yeah, for sure. Before we talk to Ben, we thought we'd take a listener question. It was pretty apt, not only for this interview with a documentary filmmaker, but also in these times when we are having our perspectives on life rocked on a weekly basis. Yeah, it is uh, June 3rd, 2020, just for uh, context for in case you're listening of this. You know, there's been a lot of events in the world. A lot of events, yeah. A lot, you know, a lot of protesting. So uh, I think everyone's in a very introspective and thoughtful time 
Not to mention the global pandemic, the quarantine, us all going nuts, my kid driving mm-hmm. me crazy, etc. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. So through the lens of a filmmaking podcast, it makes you think about what you want to say and why you want to say it and what you want to put out into the world. Right. So on that note, we got an email. Hello, my name is Anna Tarist. I'm 25 years old and I have a BFA in filmmaking and I'm on the autism spectrum. I recently came across your podcast and now I'm a huge fan. I'm currently developing a documentary on autism acceptance and representation in media. As a woman with Asperger's, this subject is very personal to me. I wish to discuss how inaccurate portrayals of autism can harm autistic people and influence how they're treated. I've been told by my mother to not be so negative and have been warned by my former professors to not alienate my neurotypical audience. I've also been struggling with a budget as my last documentary was only half an hour and made on a shoestring budget when I was in college. I plan on making my current documentary feature length and submit it to festivals such as Sundance. So these are Anna's two questions. Number one, what advice would you give on making a documentary about a subject you're passionate about? And number two, what is the standard budget for an independent documentary? Thanks for taking the time to read this and keep up the great work on the podcast. Thanks so much, Anna, for the question. And I apologize ahead of time because you were talking to two people that are definitely not experts on this, but I have thoughts and I'm sure you do too. Yeah, yeah. Well-intentioned doofuses uh, (laughs) at your service, Anna. Um, Let's start with the budget first because I think that one's maybe a little easier. So the answer is the most frustrating version, basically, is like there's not a typical one in the same way that there's not a typical, quote unquote, amount for an independent feature, right? Like they can range from effectively nothing or like crafty is donated and, you know, you shoot it on your iPhone all the way up to something much more substantial. I think it is important when you're thinking about budgeting things. It's easy to think that documentaries purely fly on the wall, but you do need to think about production days, and how much time it's going to take in that increment of shooting and then post. I think that's going to be the best way for you to figure out how to budget your film correctly and whether or not there's travel and housing involved as well, right? So like if you think of it as like, okay, in the most barest bones version, you're shooting it on a camera that you own with your own sound equipment and natural light, you know how much that costs, right? Versus like knowing that uh, actually you want a little bit more help and this is something that's going to you know, take a little bit more money than still treating it like kind of a traditional batch of day rates and then figuring out, okay, well, how many interviews do I need? How many days do I need to talk to those people? Where are they in the world? I think kind of gets you there basically. But if it's something that's more long form where you're just following people that can get a lot more complicated. Yeah. I guess I didn't think about in a documentary about autism as being like that type of documentary where you're just kind of hanging out with someone for many days or going to an event or doing something, but perhaps you are. Like maybe you're telling the story of people as they evolve over time versus sitting down with experts. There's a lot of different ways to kind of slice this up. Or are you doing reenactments? Is it like a little more Errol Morris style? There's a lot of different questions. So, So to say a typical number is really tricky, but I have a hunch that one of the big challenges that you're gonna have to figure out one of the big variables is like how much your time is worth you know and how much you have to dedicate to the film realistically again don't listen to this at all but i think a feature-length documentary like 25 to a hundred thousand dollars sounds kind of a place you could do it quite well i mean on the lower budget end of things as like your first mm-hmm. feature documentary Enough for editing, for graphics, for music, for all those things that you kind of have to do, plus paying a few crew days or hiring a remote crew for a few days. If I was in this position, if I wanted to make a documentary right now, and I've 
been involved just kind of peripherally with some other documentaries, I almost always see the same thing, which is you don't on day one say like, I'm going to make a documentary on this thing and then just go get the money and go shoot it. It seems to me kind of always have to shoot stuff before you get the money. Like some proof of concept and yeah, why is this interesting? raw materials? Like yeah. you're, you're passionate about how autistic people are represented in media. Can you tell us how you're going to tell this story and why we mm-hmm. are going to be interested in listening to it? So whether it's an interview with yourself, whether it's an interview with a few other people you know, basically all that stuff that costs very little money that could be done in a couple shooting days, I think you have to do some groundwork first. And that's when you start figuring out how much money will I need? Now you know, oh, there's this big convention or this doctor or this person or this celebrity that would really make perfect Mm -hmm. sense to be associated with my documentary. And in the meantime, while you're figuring out the structure and the acts and how your documentary is going to go from A to B to C, you're also trying to book these maybe bigger name interview subjects or events or things that are timely and you're raising money at the same time i think Mm -hmm. to me it's much less than a feature film where you're like okay we're going to shoot this in 14 days and here's what we're going to do each day i I think that that is solid advice though i think that there are a lot of different ways that documentaries ultimately come together and i think that actually the further down the line and the more professional you become in the space i think the more they do just say okay well you've got 15 days and you know how do you want to spend it even at an advanced place, the sizzle reel still kind of still sell, sell the documentary, yeah. right? Well, so you're right. I think shooting a, a little proof of concept, maybe it makes it into the final feature, maybe not. I think that's really helpful because the other thing that is a thing to keep in mind is that while you can shoot documentary relatively cheaply, depending on what you own, at a certain point, your sound mix your deliverable there are some hard costs of making a feature film that become much more complicated in success yeah for sure but let's talk about the bigger question yeah i mean this is a little more open-ended what advice would you give on making a documentary about a subject you're passionate about to me i think this is kind of related to the sizzle in that it's really important for you to have an angle or a point of view like uncover something you know uh Mm -hmm. if it's about autism and you want to show how it's represented versus how it really is i think that could be really interesting Mm -hmm. have you seen american factory no well that one's about it's supposed to be great yeah it's really good it's about this very american factory Mm -hmm. that makes glass that's going to go out of business but then a chinese company buys it Mm -hmm. over and they try to change the entire culture to be from american to chinese culture So it's not based on celebrities. It's not based on anything we know, really, or have Mm -hmm. at top of mind. It's just a really well-made documentary about cultural differences and how they're accepted. And even though the documentarians never say anything, there's no voiceover or anything, there's very much this point of view of how these cultures just don't understand each other. You know, these Mm -hmm. they bring in all these workers from China to try to make the American workers more efficient by... (laughs) by removing like their humanity it's Mm -hmm. kind of awful but the chinese workers already have sacrificed everything in their life for this company and to them that doesn't feel weird you know that's just kind of part Mm -hmm. of what you do and to american workers it's like us versus the company you know right and to me if you're passionate about something find why you're passionate about it find what makes you excited to talk to people about it and when you talk about it what makes people say like whoa i never knew that or that's really Mm -hmm. fascinating work less on the science of it all and more about the emotion of it all 
And that's how you'll get people interested in what you're doing. I think that you're kind of talking about maybe a hook when you're tackling any subject. I think it's it's tricky to be too broad. Maybe if you can frame it as through the lens of a specific person and their story is really interesting or just kind of narrowing down might be helpful in terms of just explaining what your movie is. I I just want to be cautious about the point that your professors made about alienating neurotypical people because like your point of view and your insight and your specificity is what makes any art form interesting and valuable and good makes me a little nervous to think of the idea of like trying to uh, water that down and also you need to make sure that you're being clear and concise and getting editorial voices to who are on your team and understand what you're trying to say having them help you i think is important as well so it's like this real tricky balance between like being specific finding your voice and then also making sure that you can take quality notes to help you make your piece even better specificity is going to make this movie good and special and unique and also like someone who can help you narrow things i think will be valuable yeah i think the way ben berman would make this documentary is he would start off with saying exactly what you said anna which is he would probably say my mom told me not to make this documentary because i'm being so negative You know, people told me that I might alienate my neurotypical audience, but this is why I'm making it, you know? We're saying similar things differently, but I think having a point of view and obviously your point of view is really what makes a documentary filmmaker a filmmaker. Focus on that and don't be, like Matt said, too swayed by other people's reactions. Don't water things down because that's what'll make it stick out. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Keep us updated as to the progress of your documentary. And we think it's really cool and we're excited for you. And now let's talk to Ben Berman. Hey, folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take, and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. Ben Berman, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So, Ben, you made the Sundance film The Amazing Jonathan, the documentary. I heard many interviews with you about it, many of them discussing the moment of you potentially doing meth with Jonathan or Mm -hmm. potentially not doing meth. How cool is it to be on the business with Kim Masters? 
pretty that cool. was cool. To be honest, I wasn't aware of that podcast or her before it. But then when I looked it up, I was like, oh, this seems kind of legit. And my conversation with her was really wonderful. Like, I had a great time. And I think I, I just respond really well to Jewish women. <laughs> you like, there's something emotional about it. It's a lot of things coming together. So I would say I, I relate, but I wouldn't want my wife to hear me say that. So I'm not going to say that. You're married to a Jewish woman, I, I assume. No, a non-Jewish woman. Oh, wow. Yeah, she might get jealous. Well, congrats on a non-Jewish woman. That's that's big. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting sometimes seeing a documentary filmmaker be interviewed by a Terry Gross type of person because it's almost like you're sparring, right? You know, I didn't see it that way. But since that interview, uh, since the new year, I've, I've been seeing a therapist and early on in our relationship, I kind of called him out. I was like, hey, I know what you're doing. You're providing gaps in the conversation. You're, pro you're providing silence at a incredible kind of awkward amount of space in order for me to continue the conversation mm -hmm. and therefore like whatever is really kind of on the tip of your mind will come out. Like, I know what you're doing and I've done the same thing interviewing people. And he was kind of thrown by that. Does that make sense? Like, That's, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. leaving a, a, a hole for um, someone to fill. I guess that that is something we've heard a lot from documentary filmmakers, that idea of just waiting, right? For leaving that pause because there is this human instinct to fill the gap. I think that's right. Especially if they answer and you just sit there nodding and not saying anything. They'll just... Yeah, I you know, and just like fill the space fill and yeah. and when they're when you're off guard like that and you don't know what you're going to say, you kind of have a better chance of something surprising being said. Yeah. Right. So you came up in scripted comedy, right? You've directed Workaholics and Flaked and you did a bunch of comedy bang bang. How did you learn Things like what we just talked about, like leaving the gap in interviews. What gave you your instincts as a documentary mm -hmm. filmmaker? Do you think it's related or do you think it's a totally new muscle? It's all related to me. It, it's at one point very similar and at another point very different. I think maybe the skills of being a scripted director and the skills of being a documentary director are... are compatible but they're different right and so yeah. like the the tips and tricks that you we were just talking about like where do you pick those up how do you figure that out are you self-taught did you have a mentor or are you learning on the job how did you learn to make a documentary I, I would say very much learning on the job however i've always had a, a great interest in documentary filmmaking and particularly verite docs like d.a penny baker and the mazels and that type of direct cinema era. So I, I've studied it by watching it. And I went to Temple University in Philadelphia for film school, and there was a big documentary kind of push there. So, you know, I, I, I would say self-taught, because mm -hmm. even when you go to college and you're taught, taught, you don't really start learning until you start doing and failing and, and learning from yourself. But yeah, I, I would say like me leaving gaps in conversation in interviews for someone to spill the beans, that didn't come until way late in production of the Jonathan Doc anyway. At the beginning, I was probably talking over people and the camera is very restless. I think you can kind of feel 
the movie changing to some degree evolving, but definitely devolving as well. But yeah, I think the simple answer is learning kind of trial by fire and picking things up. However, I do think there was almost like probably taking a couple tricks or tips or having a little inspiration from like Louis Theroux and like Nathan Fielder in a way in regards to like silence and don't always react as the filmmaker or on camera personality or whatever the hell it is like not always reacting let the audience react and you're just kind of the conduit to get information if that makes sense no that totally makes sense just for our listeners in case you haven't seen the amazing jonathan which of course you should because you can watch it for relatively free on hulu at least if you have a friend's password or something (laughs) like maybe one of us does or maybe one of our nannies just left it programmed into our TV when she was here one time. Whoa. Thanks. Well, it's sort now, of like you Now we can't change it. TVs. Right. That's why we still have a 27-inch TV. But uh, The Amazing Jonathan is a documentary about the magician and comedian, The Amazing Jonathan, and the big kind of non-traditional thing that happens. He finds out that he has a year to live. Ben goes to document his final year on the road or what is going to happen with his life because you were, you were a fan of his beforehand too, right? You, you were familiar with him as a comedian and as a magician. Yes. And then we reveal slowly throughout the movie that you're not the only one making a documentary about him. That, and yes, very, very true. The documentary yeah. turns out to be, at least from my point of view, much more about you than about him. And it does seem to be a little bit of a pattern in your work And I I think that's kind of what makes you an interesting documentarian. And I was going to mention Nathan Fielder, too, because there's this similar thing where it seems like a joke. It seems like I'm watching a comedy, but Mm -hmm. no one is laughing. There's a (laughs) wryness. There's a sense of humor to it, right? In the way that you put it together and the way that you approach things. But also, it's not hard joke funny, I guess is what you're saying, Oren. I don't think anything I do is hard joke funny. I literally wrote an email to someone Today And I was like, I'm not a quote unquote comedy guy. But yeah, no, what is that joke? Like the written joke? I don't do that. But what I what I do is I view the world in a both a really like sad, messed up, dark way, but also in a very absurdist, funny way. And I was just having a conversation with my girlfriend last night about this of like anything that I make or anything that comes from me, let's say not an episode of Workaholics, right? You know, like that's not. Me, I'm just sure, there sure. getting coverage and whatever, right? And eating craft service. But anything that comes from me is inherently probably going to be sad and funny or mm-hmm. really dark, but also very light. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, there's a, a mixture to it. Well, let me ask, though, because I think that there are plenty of people who are listening who are like, oh, that sounds great. I want to do that. How do you approach pulling off that duality? Like, are you aiming for that, or is that kind of what you end up putting together as you're editing it? Or you can't help it. (laughs) To be honest, I don't know. I I think it's just what comes out, right? It's not like I don't plan things. You plan tone. You feel a tone. And when you prep a thing, when you shot list, or when you think about how you're going to film something, or how maybe the lighting should be, and you pull references with the DP, like... It's all part of the process. To me, balance is a key word. It's always about balance. So I just always kind of try to keep an eye on that balance. If this moment is really sad, or let's say if it's something that I didn't write and I'm like, wow, this is really heavy handed, let's add some sort of fucking dumb joke in there or let's shoot it with a really wide angle or or do something. Make it more stupid. 
make yeah. it more stupid or <laughs> undercut it. You know, it's all about balance. So it's just um, kind of keeping an eye on overall tone, which to me has so much to do with the edit. And I come from an editing background. I got my start editing on Tim and Eric. And that taught me as an editor, you're not just cutting, you can create through editing as opposed to just editing through editing, you know what right. I mean? Or, or assembling through editing. Yeah. It's not like just picking a camera, <laughs> like, okay, now we're in close up. Now we're in, like, it's not just that you can really create a mood through edit and a style and a whole voice through editing. So I really lean heavy on post for my stuff. I think that's something that is kind of interesting about your work. And knowing that you come from Tim and Eric, you know, I saw that on your IMDb page. But just now that you're talking about it, it makes me realize how much a lot of their stuff is so dependent on the edit, like holding a cut for too long or showing something three or four or ten times <laughs> or the music or obviously the visual effects. And sometimes you imagine like, what did this raw footage look or like, did they even know what they were going to do with this sure. when they shot it or did... They just figure it out. I have a friend, I don't know if it's true or not, but what he told me is that he used to be their DP and they ended up firing him because they said his work looked too good and they had the PAs start shooting things since then. Should I guess who, who it was? Yeah, do you know? Yeah. John Gulsarian. Yeah. Oh, was wow. it him? First guess. Oh, yeah. You know? He's, he's great, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of DPs that I knew. Well, Rachel Morrison shot one of their movies. I know. <laughs> I didn't. I did not know that. That's so no, funny. Rachel Morrison, well, she first shot a short film that Tim and Eric did. I think it was the first season of that Funny or Die on HBO. Oh, uh, sure. Funny or sure. Die the, presents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah which it, is kind of a different deal. That's not like Tim and Eric right, mentality, right? Yeah. yeah well, the, the, the Rachel Morrison short was really interesting and cool looking. And then she shot the billion dollar movie, Tim and Eric's movie, which I was heavily involved in. In the prep, in the production of, and then very much not involved in in the edit. And it's a it's a garbage movie. It's just no good. <laughs> and for our <laughs> listeners who don't know Rachel Morrison, she was the first woman to ever be nominated for an Oscar for cinematography. It's incredible. She shot Mudbound. She shot Black Panther. She shot Fruitvale Station. Yeah, she's an it DP right right now. Yeah. She's, she's a big deal. And, and she's fucking awesome. She's cool. I haven't yeah. really talked to her for years. But yeah, that was me and her shot listing... Like close up Tim vomits, you know. <laughs> Eric Eric's boner, you know, not, some whatever the fuck it was. But so finishing my thought about the Tim and Eric to the amazing Jonathan, and something that Matt and I talk about all the time. Sometimes, especially new filmmakers nowadays, they look at themselves and they're like, "I look just like all these other people in Hollywood. I had similar experiences to all these people. How can I have a unique voice? How can I make work that is coming out of me that looks different than if somebody else directed this?" You know, and I think it's interesting what you're saying about workaholics or those shows that were already established that you shot versus your doc work and what makes your doc so cool, in my opinion, is when you don't know how to show something from your point of view you literally just show it from your point of view you show you shooting the film or you'll have a, a google page that says why isn't jonathan returning my calls or i call my friend john mugar and you hear me complain to him and ask him questions what should i do next and then we get the answer from him right yeah and that's true of like the follow-up obviously which is like all about you and and even your shelter Sorry. short which is about uh, <laughs> you with hair talking to you after a haircut and you even break the fourth wall in that one because you are then interrupted in your filmmaking 
it almost feels like your point of view is leading these movies as opposed to there's a story happening and you're just showing it to us from your point of view. It seems like your point of view is the story, if that makes sense. I, I think with those three three things, yeah. And but, but that shelter short that I shot in two seconds and edited in three seconds and put up yesterday, like I, I wouldn't call that a true short film. The follow-up I'm actually very proud of and, and I think it does something interesting and I would count that in with my short films. But yeah, I, I think lately... I'm either continuing the experiment of me, Ben, as someone that might be worthy of being in front of the camera, because it's never been that way. I've got an ego. I'm kind of interested in allowing that exploration to happen. But I still very much want to make real movies that don't have dumb me in, in it. Right. But the amazing Jonathan played at Sundance. You have to say it's a real movie. Sure. But, but, yeah, but I, well, that's I, I, not what you're so. saying that... The shorts are, are maybe um, not, you know, oh. you're saying that maybe they're, they're not like part of your oeuvre, but I think it's interesting to think about like what someone's doodles or experiments or, yeah, experiments, like what those mean to like what you're trying to work out and what your style ultimately becomes and what your voice is. I think that that's kind of maybe more telling than something that you've labored over for two years or something. I think there's something to that. I'll also say we've done this as we've been coming up and we'll continue to do this. We look at someone else. We look at P.T. Anderson and we're like, oh, my God, how did you know to do this? How did you develop your style? Blah, blah. And, and the answer that he'll give probably is like, I just did it. It's just what came about. I failed for a long time and I, then I did this and that finally worked. And it's so much potentially like the answers are always dumber <laughs> than we we want them to be yeah yeah so it's i like, think ah, the, the dolly broke man I yeah don't know. right i just yeah. we just did it that way because we were running out of time exactly so me being in stuff and maybe feeling like you're experiencing my point of view because you see me as opposed to it's just me editing it and potentially writing it, it it's really about especially in in this quarantine, I only have access to myself. It's not like I can have Jacob reach out to Seth Rogen or Ben Schwartz to be in a thing of mine. It's me. I have me. And I, I don't know. I, that's all right. That's okay. That's okay. Is it cool if I describe your shelter short? It's only like a minute and a half. I'm very curious to hear you describe it. <laughs> Matt, you haven't seen it, right? I don't think so, no. So it's Ben with longer hair talking to Ben with shorter hair, right? Just in cuts. And then halfway through your conversation, you are starting to talk about whether you're crossing the line or not, whether you're shooting yourself from the correct angle. And then short hair Ben, which obviously you shot after a long hair Ben, is interrupted by your girlfriend, I'm assuming, Marta? Yes, yes, yes. And you need long hair Ben to be reacting to short haired Ben being interrupted by Marta, but obviously you don't have that footage because you didn't know you were going to be interrupted. And so you're reusing old footage of long haired Ben and you leave all of that in there, and then you have footage of her saying that what you're doing is stupid and you should cut all of it out, and that's in there. And then at the end, you give her a producing credit. <laughs> so I feel like every aspect of this thing that you shot in 10 seconds mm -hmm. is reminiscent of The Amazing Jonathan, 
which is kind of reminiscent of, I'm assuming you guys have seen American Movie, right? The documentary? It's mm-hmm. my number one documentary that I reference in regards to my number one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's a movie about a filmmaker making a movie, and we don't care what movie he's making. We care about how he's making the movie. It's the best. If you haven't seen American Movie, it's a documentary about this insane filmmaker. And my favorite, most memorable scene is when he's auditioning actors. <laughs> And they are not doing the dialogue the way he wants it to oh be. My God, he's I showing love it. them how they should be doing it. And he freaks out. It's like one of those moments where you're like, well, he's not an actor, but he's so invested in his bad it's, script that you're sold. It's the best. Yeah. Well, it's I don't so know, man. He's, he's just like, <laughs> I love anyway. it. It reminds me of Project movie. Greenlight. And, you know, yeah. they, we don't care about the movie they make in Project Greenlight, but we care about the drama behind the. Sure, that's the true. Something I think that, Oren, you were hinting at and that I think is maybe interesting is like if you if you look at Tim and Eric and then you like all and the kind of connect the dots all the way through your shorts up to Amazing Jonathan, in a sense, it's like maybe a part of your style is about embracing mistakes or chaos, right? There's an unpredictability to it. 100%. It, it, it's definitely like... The Amazing Jonathan doc, the follow-up, and the shelter short. I can't believe we're going that far on that. But it's definitely about embracing the unexpected, embracing problems, and showing the seams, right? Mm-hmm. Showing the process within it. Mm-hmm. And and I really like that. However, I don't want to get too lazy and just stay up there, you know? Like, I want to transcend or, or go to the next place with that or never do it again. Because like there is, there is definitely an, a, a potential issue of just like, oh, when you don't know what to do next, just go meta, you know, like turn the camera around on you and fuck, like fuck that. Like that's going to get old. I think people like it on your Vimeo page. I watched some music video where you have a guy with the giant shoes and the long arms. Yes. And there's this boy. I mean, he looks like a teenager or something yeah, that's, a, dan- right. that's dancing. Dancing boy, yeah. <laughs> and there's text on the screen that says, let's watch this boy dance or something. And then he's yeah. dancing. And then you say, like, okay, we've seen enough boy dancing. No, that's um, exactly that's exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm really just going for that. But I guess it feels truthful, you know? I, okay, so the, in nonfiction, here's how I justify some of that. It, definitely in the Jonathan Doc, because that was ultimately an exploration, I guess, in in truth, right? The whole movie is about, is Jonathan lying or not? You know, is he really dying or not? What's truth versus what's illusion? Making my first doc, I like that uber transparency. Like, me as the filmmaker going to hold my subjects accountable for the truth. The experience of watching the movie is going to be more truthful than watching other documentaries because it's a documentary is presenting truth. So... That's how I kind of philosophized it for myself and maybe for for others for the Jonathan doc. But I do think I want to be careful with that and not just when I don't know what to do next or, you know, what could be interesting here. Oh, go self-reflective. I made two other short films, one in 2014 and one in 2016, that are fiction. And I'm very, very proud of and they don't have tricks like that they're just you know pretty sincere narrative pieces so like i like to do that stuff too (laughs) right well so in the follow-up the film is supposed to be about you figuring out what to do after jonathan right yeah i guess it, it begins with the concept of well what do you got next you know you made this documentary that's that was kind of successful but what have you done lately 
and me kind of copying to the idea that I don't have any ideas. Why don't I have ideas? How do I get ideas? And then that, of course, for some <laughs> reason, it's not very logical, but I get the advice via the internet to like, I need to talk to people. Therefore, I utilize Cameo.com, which is a a service that can bring people together, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so Cameo.com is where you can hire a loosely defined celebrity. Yeah, I mean, bona fide celebrity, though. You recognize them all. And you can, you can pay them basically to say whatever you want them to say? Is that how it works? What you do is my friend Chad, let's say, it's his birthday coming up. And I want John Lovitz to wish Chad a happy birthday. So I, via Cameo, will write John Lovitz. And it's got to be 250 characters or less. And I just write him what I'm looking for him to do within this video for Chad. And then he'll do whatever he wants. I don't think you can script it completely. You kind of give them prompts of what you're looking for. And you pay your money and they within five to seven days or something, we'll send you your video and then you'll send that to Chad and everyone's happy. And John Lovitz makes a little bit of cash. And so in this way, it's hard to call the follow-up nonfiction exactly, but it is sort of in this kind of meta doc sort of world, right? Certainly there's things that are captured intentionally, right? Like any screen grab or like any of these cameo pieces. So there's a script to it in a sense, and kind of in the same sense that sometimes a doc is. There's like an idea, I guess is what I'm saying. You're aiming at something, but it still happens more or less organically and you're reacting off of the things that are happening as it goes. Yeah. So tell us about that process a little bit. Like how did that, how did you put it together exactly? And did you know what the ending was going to be when you started? I did not know what the ending was going to be when I started. And it's interesting. I totally know what you mean when you say, I don't know if it's nonfiction or if we can call it nonfiction or call it a documentary. And you're not the first person to, to say that. And if you were to say that, and you did, you're not wrong. But also, Who's to say? How is it not a documentary? All those steps I was actually going through. Like, that's real stuff. And there was no script. But you're asking for advice from, like, Eric Roberts or whoever, right? So I did that. How did that not happen? Right? (laughs) Yeah, that's it's factual. I I mean, it's a really, it's a fun, (laughs) interesting question, right? I think what we have to say is I'm a genius because I figured, no. (laughs) I figured out a way... An interesting way to do nonfiction, or I guess it blends fiction and nonfiction, which is something I definitely like doing, or at least like having audiences question what's real, what's not, and is it all real or is it all fake? Hey, Trump 2020, you know, it's like fake news and it's commentary, I guess, right? Yeah. I, I guess if you think of documentary as like the pure journalism, right? Like witnessing something. And then you've got, yeah. you know, manipulate something right. like all the way up to like recreations and kind of that like Errol Morris sort of vibe where it's like, this is just a movie set. And also there's certain facts, but you're admitting th- things here and there. And you're kind of in this extra meta universe away from all of that. That's especially interesting. But I, I guess what I really want to talk about yeah. is that as a narrative filmmaker, whenever I watch a really great documentary, I always get a little jealous of the filmmaker when you can tell there's that moment where their subject or their story just like takes a huge turn. 
right? Where something crazy happens that you're not anticipating. Like I think about in Queen of Versailles, mm-hmm. like where they think they're going to make a movie about this rich asshole and then they pivot and it's like, oh, this woman is totally the the interesting story and then the financial crisis happens. Yeah. And all of a sudden you've got a movie that's about something way bigger than they originally anticipated, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that seems like that's something that you are embracing as a filmmaker wholeheartedly. You're giving like uncertainty a bear hug, right? I think I, I think you have to, right? I think if you don't do that as a documentary filmmaker, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> like that's just short-sighted and just shooting yourself in the foot. If you see something in front of you and you're like, that's incredible, but that's not what I want to do. I want to do this little thing on this <laughs> little guy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, what a dummy for not pursuing that. And what my experience with the Amazing Jonathan doc has brought me, you know, I don't think I've actually done a fiction narrative or, or anything after that. But what I've been thinking about is how I aim for me to bring that same energy to fiction work. I've said it before, but when I did fiction, comedy, TV, or whatever before, I prepped so heavy and would shot list and storyboard and do blocking of the actors in my own prep, you know, and overhead things. And then when we got to set, I'm like, okay, you stand here and you say this, then you go over here. And like, I had predetermined everything (laughs) and shut out, for the most part, the value that the real actors would bring to the thing. Like it was only going to be as good as what I had imagined it was going to be. There's no room for collaboration. There wasn't much room for true collaboration and and elevation. And with the Jonathan doc, I got better as, as I was growing and aging and maturing and stuff. But then the Jonathan doc has totally taught me like, Sure, have a game plan, but my God, sit back and just observe the value that's there and enhance the value. Don't try to ham-fist your vision and be open to a new, better vision. That's absolutely the way to go through life, for sure. It seems like a lot of the story is built in the edit. Like, you even look at Cheer or Tiger King, and definitely The Amazing Jonathan, the order you're introducing information is not necessarily the order that it happened in real life. You're building a narrative arc in twists and turns. Like right. there's a Nikki character you find out about, you know, about two thirds into the movie that I suspect you probably knew about earlier, but it works really nicely that you introduce her then. Yeah, that's kind of true, but it's really not too far from the way things really happened. Other than that one moment that we can't spoil that happens in Vancouver at a movie screening where, I don't know if you remember, but that's an edit choice of like a strong reveal, which I'm very, very proud of. So there's some editing choices, some messing with chronology in order to affect the audience in a really good, strong way, purposefully. But everything else kind of happened, for the most part, as it happened in the movie, time-wise. Right, right. And I'm not saying that you're like changing the truth. I'm saying you're presenting it in a way, like like a Tiger King example is like Joe Exotic's husband, his first husband, he was missing a lot of teeth and he apparently got dentures and veneers and he looks much better now. And they did a lot of interviews with his new teeth, but they chose not to show them because it changed the perspective you have on who this person is. Sure. You know, and in cheer, there's one character, Lexi. She came from a real troubled background and they end the series with showing her at a rave but mm-hmm. with subsequent interviews with her, we find out that those scenes were shot 
way before the championship and every and kind of the way the show leaves you thinking that she went back to the bad place after all this <laughs> happened. Turns out, no, that was just something that was going on during cheerleading. It was not negative at all, but they wanted to give us, you know, different types of endings and putting that footage there worked. And it's not that that didn't happen. It's just that the timing built it in a dramatic way. And there's an agenda, you know, in how you're presenting the information as a documentary filmmaker. I'll definitely say that I think the filmmaker's agenda will inherently be different than a subject's agenda. Mm -hmm. And it's the filmmaker that controls the edit and it might not be completely accurate, but one would think that the filmmaker thinks that what they have done will create a better story for the audience. And, and ultimately, these are all films for an audience, stories for an audience. So that's the philosophical conundrum I think doc filmmakers have to continuously think about and struggle with, at least I do. To some degree, maybe other people are just like, no, it didn't happen that way. Or this happened <laughs> first and then this happened second. How dare you present <laughs> right. something other than that? So I, I don't know. Everyone has their own choices and I don't, I don't have the answers, but I, I just do what I do. And you guys do what you do. And <laughs> sure. We all do what we do. Well, uh, just to get into like a little nuts and bolts, I was wondering if you had any any tips on how to get good interviews in a documentary. You know, we've spoken about leaving gaps. Do you have a, a bunch of questions written out? Do you do a lot of research? Any tips you've developed while you were doing Jonathan? Interviews? I don't know. I, I don't like to even think like I'm an interview type documentarian. I like to think that I'm a little bit more of a verite. Get in there and observe and be there as opposed to like, Okay, you sit in that chair, I sit here, we look at each other, and question, answer, question, answer. Right. But you had, like, Penn and Teller and Weird Al Yankovic yeah. and Andre, and you're, you're getting a lot of perspectives on yes. the amazing Jonathan. So, yeah, the interviews that I did do and with Jonathan and with his wife, Anna, we did a good sit-down interview towards the end. And with the interviews that I'm most proud of, I think, here's definitely a piece of advice, which is, like, if you have real hard questions that you need to ask, that you need some real kind of serious answers, but you're worried that they're going to put the subject on guard, you can put them later in the interview. And like, I built some interviews where it's like, okay, I'm going to, for literally 40 minutes, it's going to be the best interview you've ever given, you know, and you're going to talk a lot about yourself and talk about all the good days and all this stuff, like talk about anything you want to talk about, really. And I'm going to support you. And then I'm going to, Ask a pretty tough question, but I'm going to deliver it like it's the same everything, the same happy-go-lucky thing. You know, after that, we're going to go back to some, like, nice light ones, and then, you know, you kind of pepper it in, and you just kind of keep the same energy. So that that's important. And, yeah, I, I other than that, I, I really don't know. I can't say that I'm, I'm a professional. <laughs> Clearly, you, you should see the movie. I'm not a professional. Well, do you have a strategy on how you shoot them? Do you like to always have two cameras? Yeah, ideally two cameras so you can edit out what you don't want people to say, basically. No. <laughs> you know, edit out for time and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I would say for sit-down interviews, or at least the sit-down interviews in the Jonathan doc, because I would like to think the next set of interviews that I do for another doc, the style can and should be significantly different. But yeah, two cameras, one that's in like a wider medium shot and one that's in kind of a medium close-up and maybe off angle a little bit to provide that edit you know the ability to edit unto itself and I also just think 
what you ask people and the way you use interviews doesn't have to be traditional. I think you'll see in the Jonathan doc that something that starts traditional ends up becoming a bit of a surprise. And I think it fucking works really well. Basically hearing the, the talking heads that were talking about Jonathan, I recounted the tale that I was going through to them and got their reactions. <laughs> Very happy and proud of that. So even if you guys ask me how I do something and I tell you how I do it, I encourage the audience to... Sure, think about it, listen about it, listen to it, but don't just do what I do. Do what you do. Find your own thing and, and push it forward. Like, fuck it up a little bit, you know? Just following paint by numbers is so boring. And you see that in a lot of docs and you see that in tons of movies. And those are the things we don't aim to do, right? I thought about this. I don't know if I've ever articulated this, but I feel like when I was a young kid coming up wanting to be a director, wanting to make movies, you look at other people and you copy what they're doing. You want to do what Scorsese did or Spielberg. You want it to look like a real movie. You want it to look like a real movie. Then you get to the ability, you get to the place where you, you know, kind of roughly have what it takes to make it like a real movie, make it move and feel and sound like an, a real movie. And that's when you're like, I want it to be fucked up. I want it to not be like a real movie. I want to challenge what that is, you know? Right. And I think, I think that's really, yeah, it right. It feel real. Exactly. Or real or just like... Or just different. You want to mix it up, right? You, you want to elevate movies. At least I do or something. Like, I don't want to just make a a thing that looks and sounds like a movie. You know, right. I don't know. Well, like in Jonathan, it's really about you trying to make this documentary. And even, you know, whether it's the way you edited it or whether it's the way you shot it, a lot of the cinematography encapsulates that like in an interview when you're interviewing Jonathan kind of later on in the movie in the wide shot we see the lights we see the c-stands we see all that stuff you know you're yeah. there's a lot of shots of you holding your shoulder mounted Sony a7 what is that yeah, yeah a7s2 I'm, I don't know maybe on every documentary there's a lot of shots of people shooting things and they, they just never out. use them. <laughs> yeah. But in your documentary, you chose to focus on those. So I think that's, again, like what you're saying is try to shoot it in the way that you're shooting it or the way that you're telling the story, not the way everyone else has done it. Yes. And I think, you know, my advice to others is you don't have to have the answers ever. Certainly at the beginning, if you're waiting to be like, the style of the movie is going to be this, and it's going to look like this and sound like this, and the type of music's gonna be this. Don't, just start. That's how I make some stuff. It's, it's certainly easier to, to do that with nonfiction work because the barrier of entry is kind of lower or easier. Well, I mean, you could argue though that screenwriting, you can do yeah, that sure. as well, right? Absolutely, just start, yeah. and you don't need to know where you're gonna go, where the end is, or you're not, you, you know, sure understand maybe if it's going to be a horror or you know a, a rom-com like that's probably important to know but other than that just start and you'll find it as you go along and then you can also go back and revise to make the beginning you know as kind of paralleled sure. or something to what you just wrote right but for your scripted narrative stuff you don't do that you have much more of a plan going into it i would say so I would say so. I guess look and style. I wouldn't say necessarily music and music is a lot of the tone and the edit. You know, you'll always try to surprise yourself in the edit. Yeah, I, I would say yes with the fiction stuff. 
you have a bit more of a sense before you begin, but still there's a huge exploration as you make it. And if there isn't, I just think that you're just cutting yourself short, right? Yeah, I would hope so. I would hope so. So I'm curious to, I'm, it's hard to ask this question because of the pandemic and all that, but like, it feels like creatively you've jumped over all these hurdles, right? Like you've accomplished so much. It feels like you've like figured a few things out, right? And one of the things that you figured out is like that you want to embrace surprise and chaos and surprise yourself. What are you looking for next in your creative endeavors? Like what's that next step for you? What's the follow-up to the follow-up? Yeah, what's the follow-up to the follow-up? Yeah. There very well might be in a year or two the follow-up feature, which is the same story but a continuation of that story. But I have a feeling that's not going to happen, but you never know. (laughs) But I have been continuously, casually documenting my life via my computer screen and Mm -hmm. after the follow-up and and all that stuff. Can I ask a dumb question about the follow-up, actually? Sure. How much did you spend on Cameo? I don't answer that question, but what I... What I do say is that I've spent too much of my own money on those cameos. Therefore, I need to, which I have done, I've joined Cameo as talent in order to (laughs) get my budget back. But it's not going well. I've only gotten two requests at $39.99 each so far. So it looks like I somehow I have to become more famous Mm -hmm. in order to get more cameos bought to get my budget back but i'm guessing Mm -hmm. in me trying to become more famous i'll spend too much money and it'll just be this vicious cycle that's capitalism right there exactly yeah (laughs) but no i have uh fiction drama comedy that uh, it's been my passion project for way too many years than it should have been and it's still not necessarily getting made but my calling is certainly to make a true narrative feature film dark comedy and then I will have arrived, <laughs> right? I'll, then I will truly be PT. I will be Wes Anderson. I'll be all the Andersons. Yeah. Yeah, there's a movie called Nice Rooms that I've been trying to make for a while, and Jacob's going to make it happen, right? Perlin's going to make it happen. He said he would, so I believe him. Nice. Do you have any cast attached or anything? We just sent the script to Peter Sarsgaard, and... I wrote him a letter. I love Peter Sarsgaard. He's incredible. And he's at Anonymous. Which you would think would make it easier, right? I would like to think. like It makes it a tiny bit easier, right? Maybe not yeah. easier, but it just feels like it's in the family. Maybe they're a little bit more prone to be like, sure, yeah. He's thinking, if my manager at Anonymous is sending me this script and emailing me saying, hey, I like this, check this out. And the guy's at Anonymous, I would like to think he's more prone to go ahead and do it, but... That's probably wishful thinking. I mean, at the very least, Jacob will run into his manager in the hallways when this is all over. After quarantine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's cool. What do you say in a letter like that? Hey, you're pretty awesome. Pretty much. Hey, you're awesome. Would love to send you this script. Uh, I think it's awesome. Just use the word awesome like five (laughs) times and radical and surfs up and shit. What did I say? I kept it very brief. I think brevity is important. No one likes to fucking read a bunch of shit. Brief, how, how long are you talking? I like think three like three paragraphs. Two short paragraphs, pretty brief, almost pointless, almost pointless <laughs> to, to write. Did you tell him why you thought he's the perfect? You're going to waste his time, but not that much. I didn't get into specifics like I have in other letters like that of like the eyebrow raise you did in that one role in that one movie changed my life. I didn't get into that shit. I did say like, 
I strongly feel you'll be able to pull off the blah, 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 the character, mm-hmm. the poignant, you know, emotion and the troubled nature or whatever. I basically right. probably offended him is what I probably did. <laughs> I was like, you just seem like the kind of guy who's really fucked up and you can pull off fucked up. Yeah, no, that's what people tell me all the time. Do you get cast in things? Are you ever in front of the camera? No, I mean, only in my little quarantine videos. Do either of you guys have an itch to get in front? We're both married to actors. And so I think like you're kind of reminded of how terrible life that that yeah well look and we're also both podcast hosts so like whatever itch there is we've scratched it right like we still have ego you know yeah 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 (laughs) but i actually i look at your stuff and today i kind of did a deep dive on it and it does make me think the stuff of mine that i like is where you hear my voice Mm -hmm. behind the camera you know i've been filming my daughter a lot during the quarantine just like doing dumb videos with her and I feel like my relationship with her and what we're capturing, not that it's anything, it's literally me just asking her a question and her ignoring me, is a more, to me, interesting performance than I've gotten from some really great actors, you know? Yeah. And so I'm curious about it, and I have been struggling with what is my brand. I mean, Matt and I, primarily over the last few years, have been working in commercials, which is like, what is your brand is whatever they tell you your brand is today, sure. you know? Sure. Um, Literally, it's that you're working for another brand. <laughs> right. Yeah. So just being busy and trying to make money and all that stuff, you yeah. aren't really making a lot of your own stuff. And so in this downtime, not that I've really made anything <laughs> substantial, but just like getting my camera back out and just using my yeah. iPhone and experimenting and letting things happen has made me realized that I don't want to be in front of the camera, but I don't want to shy away from me saying exactly what I think and whether that's text on the screen, you know, kind of like you do or my voice or my family or my daughter or someone on the street. That is exciting to me all of a sudden so much more than like, yeah, we're going to get the drone shot here and the dolly's going to start here and end here. And oh, well, the sun's not in the right place. You know, like worrying about that stuff. Commercials can be really, really precious. Right. And so if you plan everything so thoroughly, that can be really gratifying and really incredible. Like to spend weeks on 30 seconds worth of footage is really wild. Mm -hmm. But also the flip side is that it can be a hindrance. Right. So like if not having actors keeps you from shooting, then that's a problem. So I think being able to turn the camera on yourself just as a solution to maintaining creativity, I think is valuable for sure. Yeah. Different years for me have been vastly different. Like there was one year, I think 2017, where the majority of what I did was commercials. And now I haven't done a a commercial for over a year now. My life is so weird. It's very uncomfortable at times because it's month to month, year to year is extremely different. And I never know, I kind of knock on wood. Now I'm, I'm getting a sense of what will be my next paycheck, but I have no fucking idea. It's it's so, it's crazy how much of a struggle it is. But yeah, 2017, I did a bunch of commercials. And I don't know, I sometimes I work really well with commercials and agencies. And other times it's like, why do you even want me? You make this cool ass treatment, you know, and you really sell yourself. And then chances are you don't get the job. Like what a waste. And then, then <laughs> right. if you actually get the job, then it's a bunch of work and you put your ideas forward for them to maybe knock it down and say, actually, it's got to be different. Like we had this in mind. Then you just have to go, yeah, 
Yeah. And and ah, man. I think Ooh. the most successful commercial directors are just very good at saying, oh, okay. No, okay. It's no, that's fine. No, it's fine. We'll do it that way. You know, like I think. I don't know. Wait, I want to clarify. When you say, ah, no, okay, do you mean Oh, I'm sorry. Then, we'll, no, okay, we'll do it your way. Yeah, no, we'll do it. No, like we'll, the agreeable ones or the yeah, ones that yeah. are pretending to be agreeable but still do it their own way. I think the agreeable ones. Because if you oh, agree and then do it your own way, I think you agree do it their way and then try to get a couple takes or something where maybe you can do it your way. And then if you get a director's cut or something before you know, yeah, that you present I, to the agency, like put it that I, way. Yeah. I totally disagree. Orin and I are pretty good at eating Maybe, the, maybe that's why I'm not yeah. good and you guys work all the time. Well, so no, no. Tell me. I, I think I'm one of the bad people because I am super agreeable. Matt's incredibly agreeable too. But you think of like Michelle Gondry or Spike Jones or yeah, I think the best commercial directors are like, "Hey, I think that's stupid, and you're paying me to be awesome." But but they don't they don't say I think that's stupid. Like when Spike Jones comes in to pitch you on his version of like for your commercial, you're like, "Oh shit, that is Spike Jones," and he's gonna say, "I am so pumped about this. We're gonna." do something that's never been done before. We're going to take this room where she's dancing and we're yeah. not going to use visual effects. We're going to design it so it stretches out. We've already done models. It's going to blow your mind. I know we talked about a different idea, but this is so exciting. And they trust Spike Jones to know what's exciting more than themselves. And that's Absolutely. like the, the but successful directors. They don't even get the, the agency's ideas because they've already oversold their own ideas, you know? I've never thought about like Spike coming up with his own idea or whatever, but there's no question that Michelle Gondry or Spike Jones or whomever, one of those types, those agency people are fucking bowing down to people like that. Right. They'll do. Right. I don't think that that's not what the process that we're talking about. That's a whole other stratosphere that hopefully. But don't some, you think, Ben, like now that you've had this big Sundance film with a big sale that was all over the trades that's on Hulu, that is. It's meaningless. (laughs) Documentary and storytelling, like very deliberate storytelling at the same time. And it's all about who you are. You don't think you come in now and the people that are presenting you are like, this is Ben Berman. Not only has he directed Workaholics. Time out, time out. Because I I think, Orrin, what you're saying. I I cannot wait to respond to this question because I'm going to annihilate your understanding of the way things should work. Yes. But we all yeah. agree that your Spike Jones and your Gondry and your Fincher, like there's rarefied air where like literally the ad executives got into the game because of those spots that they saw as kids. That's a different conversation, right? Yeah. What you're saying, Warren, is that Ben, you are bona fide, right? Like there are external validations that say that you were a good filmmaker and that you have valuable ideas and that people should listen to what you have to say. Creative you have credits people have heard of. Yeah, yeah, you're you're shrugging right now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for, the, for the listener with no. one with yeah, only my right yeah. shoulder. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're mildly shrugging. Right. But part of it is for the sake of our listeners who think, oh, if I, only my short gets into Sundance, then my career is going to take off. So this is part yeah. of the lesson. Oh, it's not a good lesson. This is a very <laughs> painful lesson. I'm 37 years old. I've yes, I've had the Jonathan Dock at Sundance, the sale, the trades, whatever it is. And and I haven't really truly worked since, you know, I don't think I've got some things that are coming up. But no, I have I been up for commercial jobs that I haven't gotten? Absolutely. Have I not received a single offer to direct more fiction comedy TV? Absolutely. I have not. You think you're there. And I thought I was there. Well, how could you not? Right. 
I I think that's the cliche thing yeah. that it, it's almost trite, right? At this point, it's just like you do experience quote unquote some sort of success, and you feel like you've arrived. Life is going to be different after this. And I will say, it's absolute. It is different. The the meetings you that don't I go was outside very I, much. Yeah, right. Oh yeah, the the <laughs> pandemic is different. <laughs> no, I, I I will say that there have been a a ton of wonderful things that have happened. I've had wonderful conversations and had better meetings and a lot of praise from cool people, and that's cool. But has it equaled? Oh, now you're on Easy Street. Now you're getting all this work and you're making tons of money. No. No, life isn't as clean as that. But that's also the beauty of it is like, I probably wouldn't be happy if I had everything I wanted. You know, I probably wouldn't make good stuff still. There's something about a struggle or at least being honest with yourself about where you are or at least allowing yourself to kind of go into the uh, sad places sometimes, I think. Can I ask you an uncomfortable career question? Mm, Yes, you can. And we'll see how I answer (laughs) it. We'll see how it goes. You know, you have this career of scripted narrative, right? And then your big success is in documentary. Could it be possible that people are confused by it a little bit? Do you know what I mean? Like, like I do. The traditional Hollywood idea would be like draw a straight line for them. Like, yeah, let, yeah. Like, let, make who, it really who are clear. You? What are you? What are you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Put yourself in a box. Yeah, right? we got to think yeah, about yeah. you. And especially, you know, in commercials, it's even more finite. It's like, oh, he or she is the comedy dialogue person sure. uh, which is yeah. way different than the comedy visual person like what the fuck is that like they yeah. really try to put you in really m- m- like micro boxes which i, I mean find... I, I would say i'm probably the comedy dialogue person on this I... podcast compared to oren right is that you're probably yeah, i yeah. think that's probably I'm true. A, like yeah. comedy vfx <laughs> i want to yeah. be that I want to be uh, that. We can all do cars or something. No, of yeah, course. Water's over here too, right? It's all meaningless. It's just yeah. like production companies need to sell this person as this and then this person as that. But so, yes, I, I, I think, yeah, maybe. And how fucking lame is that? But also, I don't know. My girlfriend and I were having a conversation last night that kind of circled some of what you just mentioned of like, what is your brand or tone or something? Like, Because she works mm-hmm. in art. She's a... A director of an art gallery and she has to sell art to collectors and like be able to pitch oh this is a you know baldessari and he's this type of painter and then there's this and i very much and this is what i was telling her yesterday i very much see between my short first fiction short i'm a mitzvah and my second fiction short how to lose weight in four easy steps and the jonathan doc and the script of Nice Rooms, which is the feature. I forgot you did that short, man. That short is so good. Thank you. H- See, How to Lose Weight. It's so oh, good. That's what I told you. <laughs> I'm sorry, what I've been man. telling people for years. I'm Dude, good. it's so no, good. No, it's so good. I appreciate that. Sorry, but man. like, yeah. I do think that underneath, sure, these two are fiction. Mm-hmm. And There's a threat. Feel, feel certain, a certain yeah. way. And then this is a messy documentary that then morphs into something else. Like, I do think that there is an undercurrent that if I was watching, I would be able to tell, like, the same person made it. They're way different, but you really feel there's that dark comedy meets, like, a reverent, awkward thing. And it's pathos and also, like, 
humor. So I don't know. Uh, if I have to tell people what I am, then we failed. <laughs> you know, if people can get a sense of me or you guys or whatever, then we've arrived into our authorship, if that's a word. But yeah, I, I, yeah, maybe. But to answer your question, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think, maybe. But for real, though, I think that listeners at home, the question of like, oh, do I follow like a creative idea or, or like an itch? Do I scratch that itch, even if it's not quote unquote exactly in the same bucket as comedy dialogue or comedy VFX? And I think the answer is obviously yes. Whoa, 110%. Like, what if what you thought you were, you were wrong? <laughs> sure. Yeah. For decades. Like, do I, I encourage everyone, it's so, so, so important to do, to make rather than sit and think about making. You just got to, you, you learn so much and you, there's so much value in making. I can't discuss anymore. I can't pitch anymore. I, I've been thinking about this and we, I'm sorry, we will wrap it up. But like, I'm not a speech maker. I'm not a speech writer. I'm not like a professional pitcher. I am a filmmaker. I need to mm -hmm. utilize visuals and music cues and edits and that's how I express myself and my ideas. I can't just like tell, where, where, how did I even start talking about that? I think I just needed to get that off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're saying that it's not about having one idea. It's about playing with all the elements, getting your hands dirty, and then seeing how they come together. I think, right? yeah, it's, it's about doing, making, crafting, as opposed to sitting in your room and planning everything and, and trying to convince yourself that it's the right thing. Like just... Just go do. There's so much more value in doing than planning. <laughs> or maybe, Ben, are you saying, just shoot it? Oh, that is the name of this podcast, right? <laughs> yes, Got it. Is. Cool. <laughs> that is. Yes, I am. I'm saying just shoot it. Brought to you by justshootitpodcast.com. That's what every interview builds up to. Perfect. Just shoot it. Yeah, man. That's great. Well, awesome. Are you cool with joining us for an unpaid endorsement? Yes. Unpaid endorsements. Okay, Matt, I feel like you're eager to go first. I'm so excited. I ordered a, a tortilla press weeks ago now. It finally came. We're in quarantine, and for whatever reason, I've had like a hard time getting like ingredients for Mexican food. And it's something I've really, really missed. And I realized I've like deeply felt like it, that's like a real comfort food for me. Which ingredients specifically? We had to order five bags of maseca in order to get it which is like the main ingredient in tortillas Basically, oh, you're like making a, your own tortillas mm -hmm. and let me tell you it's super wonderful and like pretty darn easy corn tortillas are maseca so once you get it there you go it's just like a type of flour and salt and maybe if you want to throw like a little like oil in there and then you put them into little balls and smush them and grill them for like a minute on each side on the stove yeah, like on a griddle. You can do it on like whatever, you, your cast iron, if you a uh, regular griddle, whatever you want. You could do it in a pan. And uh, then you have fresh corn tortillas, and it made me feel so much better. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, if you pickle onions, you can Google quick pickling onions recipe. You can get something pickled in like 20, 30 minutes. And then it gets, it's like a little extra flavor, a little extra oomph. 
I know everyone's getting like really into cooking during the quarantine because we don't have anything else better to do. And, you know, it's something to be creatively fulfilling and also fill a little bit of time. And so those are my two big endorsements. And I know that sounds weird, but really what I'm saying is if you think about the things that you found comfort in, that you're having a hard time being around because of social distancing, those were the things that I like honed in on basically. And I wouldn't have realized that I could have tangy pickles or pickled (laughs) onions on my tacos that easily. And sometimes it's worth looking into. Sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. It is legit dope, you guys. And our listeners might not know this, but Matt and I actually took a pasta making class in Florence, Italy together once. That is true. Yeah, we did make pasta uh, a couple weeks ago. From scratch, from Seminola flour. You know, no big deal. Yeah. You need eggs and flour and a pasta press, but still. Yeah. I have one. It is a dancer. His name is Ryan Heffington. Are you guys oh. familiar? Yeah, Sweat no. Spot. Sweat Spot. Oh, yes, and also the, the best yes. choreographer, pretty much, in all of Hollywood. Apparently, and yeah, he's worked with Spike Jones and a bunch of like he did the Sia videos. I didn't know about this uh, until after the second time I did his Instagram live feed. That's oh, great. That's pretty it, amazing. It, it is. It is incredible it's really a incredible way to start your day what he currently does is tuesday wednesday thursday at 10 a.m you just go to you know follow ryan heffington on instagram and at 10 a.m he does this hour dance class and it's just so fun and free and the moves are super simple and you just get very sweaty and it's very very positive and i'm totally was not into anything like that and i've really turned a new leaf and he's really great and really positive. And uh, yeah, so that's my unpaid endorsement. Everyone, I would say, go dance with Ryan Heffington. Oh, also on Saturday and Sunday, he, he does it at noon. And sometimes there's a special guest. He is amazing. Yeah, wasn't Pink on there recently with him? I didn't see Pink. It was Emma Stone was a special guest. It was not great. And the audio was low because they had to share, like, you know, the mic system or something. Stop ruining sweat spot, Emma Stone. <laughs> I know, I know. But her energy was contagious. It was great. But he is, yeah, so he's also an amazing choreographer. He choreographed the Sia music videos. Chandelier, you yeah, know, with this girl know. from Dance Moms. He also choreographed the Kenzo World commercial that I think Spike Jones directed with Margaret Qualley from The Leftovers. You guys, I'm mm-hmm. sure you saw it. Everyone saw it when it came out in 2016. Yeah. And then he also, if you watch the OA, the yeah. characters in that show channel these dance moves that allow them to connect to different parallel universes. They're like airbenders. And he choreographed those moves that they do. And if you know that it's the same person that did those three things, it totally makes sense. Yeah, the way he moves is really quite awesome. So I was going to, well, I started watching The Last Dance. It's awesome. I know everyone's talking about it. What might be interesting is how to watch it because I found it incredibly difficult to find. Yeah, It's not on any streaming service except maybe Hulu if you have a special package, which whoever's password I have does not have. But it is an ESPN show. And I managed to find it on the on-demand of my cable, Spectrum cable. So that's my tip for that. And then on the cooking tip, my wife just decided to buy every gadget that we were missing from all the cooking things. And she got an apple corer, which mm-hmm. I tried today. Amazing. I mean, it's fun. cutting yeah. an apple when you have a kid, you cut a lot of apples. You just take the thing and you just like shove it right through the middle of the apple. And then it's got no core. It's just got like a hole in the middle of it. It's pretty amazing. Check it Wonderful. out. Wonderful. 
<laughs> Anyhow, thanks for joining us, Ben. How can Thank we find you. out more about you? On Instagram, I'm horse underscore Berman. And Twitter, I'm lips Berman. And what else do I have? Facebook, I'm Benjamin Berman. And my phone number is... <laughs> Benny Berm. Benny Berm. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Ben. We'll list all of the stuff that we talked about on the show at JustShootItPod.com. You can follow us across all social media at JustShootItPod. And you can follow me at Mr. Matt Enlow. And don't forget, if you have any questions, you can email us at JustShootItPod at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram at OKaplan. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.